Welcome to episode four of Get It Done for the neurodivergent individual. Julie Dor Sinkfield is my partner in this. She's co-host. And today we are very excited to bring to you Jody Carlton, MED, a leading expert in adult autism and neurodiverse relationships. Uh, Jody has had over 20 years of combined experience as a therapist, educator, and coach. As a professor, she inspired curiosity in students about human drives and motivation. She has counseled and coached, coached hundreds worldwide in over 13 countries and with challenges like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, and brain injury. Jody is a leading expert in neurodiversity and has helped countless teenagers, parents, adults, and couples to understand brain differences in language, emotions, sensory processing, and behavior. Her neurodiverse relationship podcast featuring couples, partners, and professionals has been downloaded by thousands in over 42 countries. For Jody, neurodiversity is personal. Her expertise is rooted in relationships with domestic partners, her children, family members, and close friendships. Jody is also a survivor of narcissistic abuse that's, and spent years recovering from codependency that resulted from the abuse. And someone once told her, I can't imagine the number of people you're going to help because of your own experiences. And today that's Jody's exact mission to reach and guide others through her own journey of discovery and healing. So I want to uh, welcome you, Jody, and we're gonna run right into uh, something that's very near and dear to your heart, and that is um, relationships. So you actually were part of a conference and it was the world's first model for neurodiverse couples. And I am and Julie both are so interested in hearing about that. Yeah, there's, yeah a lot of, well, um, there's a lot of literature out there about the need for better communication styles and how those things can impact all the relationships around you. And so we push for people to engage in relationships because that's normal, that's natural, that is something that every human being needs. But sometimes people need to know kind of a formula for how to do it. Yes. And first of all, thank you for having me. I appreciate you reaching out to me. Um, you know, Julie, what you just said is, is so valid and so true because really we're in relationships all the time. Everything, every, every, and everything that we do, we go, even when we go to the grocery store where, where we get to know the cashier that in our local grocery store or friendships, neighbors, uh, everywhere, there are relationships. And so communication is the foundation of how we, um, you know, how those relationships grow. So again, thank you for having me. And you know, what, what questions can I answer for you? So I think the told us talk about that model for neurodiverse couples. Yeah. So um, I have a communication model that really was born out of my own relationships. So my daughter is 20 at the time, at the moment of this recording, she's a, a college student and she is autistic and was, was diagnosed with what we used to call Asperger's when she was five. Um, and it wasn't until a few years ago that I realized that her dad is also uh, on the spectrum autistic. And that was after uh, he and I divorced after 19 years of marriage. And I wouldn't, I never, I would never say, and I never do say that neurodivergence or autism is the reason for any relationship to, to fail, but it was certainly a variable that we didn't understand and we didn't know. And there was so much confusion and so much misunderstanding 
And we didn't understand why we went to therapist after therapist after therapist. And I am, you know, I, I, I'm a trained, I'm trained as a therapist. And so I felt really disillusioned by my own profession. It's like, you know, why can't, why can't my own profession help me in my own marriage? And it wasn't until, even though we knew our daughter was autistic, nobody recognized neurodivergence in her dad because most providers, and I know this because I am a trained therapist, most providers are not trained to see and to know what that looks like in adults. And because the thing is, it's easier, it's becoming more obvious and, and children are being tested more and schools and, and doctors and psychologists are starting to recognize those signs in children. But those kids grow up and uh, as they grow up, they develop different kinds of coping skills, abilities to mask. And so at an adult who's autistic is going to present really differently than a child. And so nobody was recognizing that. So I, for one, you know, my, my relationship with my daughter, first and foremost, was my priority in figuring out how do I interact with her? Um, I also ended up after my divorce, several years later, dating a man who had an autistic son. I recognized him to be autistic pretty quickly. He didn't agree with that, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I saw it and we didn't, you know, it wasn't a really, I didn't need him to, to agree with me, but there, there again, there was a lot of confusion. Um, so I developed this model for myself and it's, I, 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 I identified four actual stages of communication and most of what most of the focus in therapy or even in self-help models, or even I, I worked with a client one time who graduated with a degree in communications. And she said, we never learned this <laughs> in our, <laughs> in, in my degree, but those four stages start. So, so let me back up. The stage that's focused on the most is our interaction. That's what you learn about when you go to therapy is how you interact. How do you talk to each other? What's your body language? You know, what do you do? What do you say? The thing is, I put that stage as second, that comes second, because stage one is what we bring to that conversation to start with. And it sets the tone for everything that we say and do. And so I, I use an analogy of a backpack. And so basically we go through life, everybody thinks of baggage as all the negative stuff, right? That, that we bring into our relationships, but really our baggage is everything. It's, it's all the good stuff all some of the, you know, the bad stuff, the experiences, but even our, you know, our values, our, our, our thought, our beliefs, our experiences, um, our society, the culture that we've grown up in, everything that makes us who we are, our DNA, our neurology, you know, whether, you know, do we have neuro, neurodivergent type wiring? Um, what's our personality type that's wired into us? And, you know, what was our family, you know, what were our family of origin experiences? We get a lot of those values and beliefs from our families and from our culture. So if you imagine all that's in your backpack and you're, you're walking through life with your backpack, that's where communication starts. Because when, before we even have that interaction, we go into it with a belief about ourselves, about the person we're interacting with, about the outcome. It, we have an expectation for what we're hoping for or how we think that's going to go. We have it. Oftentimes we even expect, we predict how someone's going to react or respond or behave. And all of that influences how we actually do interact. And then 
going to the next stage is the meaning that we take from the actual interactions. So the interactions themselves. You're talking about the, you're talking about the narrative, the story that we yeah, create. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the meaning that what I, my perception is of the conversation that you and I, that we all have on this podcast today is going to be mine and it's shaped and influenced by everything I'm bringing to it in my backpack. And the two of you, there will be a recording. <laughs> so there is a recording of the words that are actually said, but all three of us and even the people who listen are going to have different meanings that they, right. that it, they interpret from what we say here. And all of those meanings are influenced by what's in their backpacks and what's in our backpacks. Mm -hmm. The way we interact is still very important. The things we say, the way we say them when we say them, how we say them, all those WH, who, when, why, where, and how, all of that stuff influences a conversation and communication. But that meaning stage is where hurt happens. It's where the way we interpret, the way we perceive it, that's where we get hurt. Because if we don't have the meaning, if, so if we interpret something as hurtful, but we don't know how to get clarity and we assume that our interpretation is also the person that we're interacting with. It's it's their interpretation that we have the same meaning and we don't know how to get clarity. We don't know how to say, Hey, this is what that means to me. This is, this is what I'm perceiving. Is this what it means to you too? If we don't know how to say, what did you mean by that? Or can you say that in a different way? So, so I can make sure I'm understanding you clearly. Then we end up with just completely different narratives. Yes. Okay. So I wanted to discuss that a little further. So in my education to my clients, I'm very much aware that there is that, you know, interpretation issue, the perception issue. And what I say to them is because we talk about, uh, let's take a pause. Let's take a micro step. Let's just see and analyze again, go through that scenario as if you were standing almost above yourself. Mm -hmm. And you're watching the communication between the two. Is it possible you interpreted incorrectly? Can you create a new, from a new lens, a new scenario of what you heard? So I really put the emphasis back on the person because one, you know, if you, first of all, we talk about, you know, obviously um, aggressive language and assertive language. The minute you say you, you're about, you're, you're making, putting the person on, mm -hmm. you know, defense mm -hmm. over there. So I explain to them how we talk about I. So I say, if you wish to speak to them and find out the interpretation, you know, I was not sure exactly what you were saying. And it's very important because if you say, you said this, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and right away, boom, they go into the defense. But I do try to teach them, turn the lens. Yes. Because yeah. I think this gives them a wider berth of interpretation. That's a, that's actually what you're referring to it can, is also referenced as theory of mind or cognitive empathy those are the, the 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 terms what that means is i have my perception my point of view but what is yours and neurodivergent individuals oftentimes well even neurotypical everybody struggles at times to recognize that my perspective is not the same as yours i'm not literally not experiencing the same thing that you're experiencing right now and neurodivergent individuals sometimes forget or aren't aware that someone else is experiencing something else. So what you're talking about when you say flip that lens is stopping to, to, to recognize, wait a minute, this is my, 
perspective, what might theirs be? And an analogy that I use that's that's really been helpful to a lot of folks is I, I, I tell them to imagine a mountain and that they're standing on one side of the mountain and that the person they're speaking with is on the other side of the mountain and that what they're looking at is rocky and barren and there's no, no vegetation there. And so, but the person on the other side of the mountain, they can't see it, but the other person sees waterfalls and, and beautiful vegetation. It's mm-hmm. green and it's lush. And if I ask them each to describe the mountain, their descriptions are going to be very different. And then I say, well, who's right? <laughs> and, and I right. see this light bulb go off for my, my clients. They're like, oh, and so I, I always remind them to, to imagine, you know, be sure to check in to, right. to either stop and ask yourself, is there another perspective here that I just don't know about that I can't see and check in with that other person you know, can you, and, and totally, I totally agree with you there, Debbie, about the uh, you and I statements. Uh, John and Julie Gottman are some of the pioneers of relationship research and work. And they talk about, they teach uh, soft and harsh startups. And I refer to this in my communication course too. And it's, it, it references how you approach and those assertive statements versus the, the harsh, those are harsh, aggressive, um, yeah. the aggressive are harsh, whereas assertive is still, you're still take you know, you're still stating what you want to say and what you need, but you're, you're taking more. I, I want to make sure I understood you clearly. I'm not sure I know what you meant. I know what my perspective is, but I want to make sure I know what yours is. It's, it's a, a softer um, startup is what they call it. I have to tell you, there's um when I ask them to draw that picture, you know, first of all, I do a different uh, scenario with mountains, but I love yours. And I say to them, you know, sometimes we see a picture in a magazine and, you, you know, always I talk about not being able to, the you know, the mind traps. So we can't be mind readers. So mm-hmm. how do we know? So we'll look at the photograph and it's really close to the face and the person's smiling. But as the photograph, if we would look and it goes further and further out, the person's smiling out of fear because let's say somebody is, you know, has a gun in their back, whatever. And so they're so frightful, they start to smile because that's a reaction. So I always explain to people, you can't mind read. You really don't know what the person is thinking behind the face, behind even behind the words. So, and I do, I just think I, I'm going to be using that analogy. <laughs> with about, our clients, sometimes we find them. that they won't start at all. They don't know where to start and or how to open a conversation with someone. Mm-hmm. So often when we bring a client on, you know, we I work with uh, neurodivergent college students. So often we bring a client on, the semester has already started. They're already you know, behind the eight ball, they've got things that are piled up already. They're overwhelmed. They're this or that, the other thing. They don't know what to say. They don't know who to say it to. And the first thing we do is we're like, all right, well, let's list out our conflicts right now. Mm-hmm. And I'll, we'll talk about who these people are and we'll talk, we'll help you manage these communications with these people. We'll give you the language. We'll give you the words. It's what my, my daughter asks for when someone says, go talk to somebody. She was like, give me all the words. You know, so, so. right. The language of emotions, the language right, of feelings. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that you know, you give someone the words, and then they are able to take it from there, because yes. sometimes the the problem is that chasm starting. The start, yeah. The the actual initiation of interaction 
And what you're talking about, that, that scripting, giving the giving the words, it's a social form of social story. I don't know if you're familiar with um, social stories. I think, oh, I can't think of her name off the top of my head. Um, but social story, social scripting is, you know, how do you, in, in different scenarios, how do you start that conversation with, and my daughter is 20. She's a junior in college and has the exact same difficulties with knowing how to initiate that conversation. And so we do, we, we go over scripts because you, you, the other thing that especially autistic neurodivergence and a lot of ADHD neurodivergence struggle with is generalizing from one situation to another. So Mm -hmm. in this one, this script worked, but what about this one and this one? And, And it's hard for them to take the script and apply it in different different right I have yeah. I am actually working with a client now and um I'm finding it pretty incredible she feels very awkward to do things out of her comfort zone but very much so that it actually destabilizes or just stops her from doing what, what life would usually people would like to accomplish in life for instance um I think uh, Julie and I spoke spoke of this where she said to me she was in a relationship with a gentleman for quite some time and she said I didn't feel he was deserving of my uh, of learning about my emotions. And so she didn't want to share. And then I said to her, okay, because I recognized there's something on here. She needs to start feeling, feeling. So I said to her, why don't you call one of your friends from high school? Just call and say hello. She goes, oh, no, I feel too awkward. And then we go through the whole thing, the awkwardness. So can we address awkwardness with communication and the, and the initiation? Yeah, so awkwardness is that, uncertainty of self the the not knowing is this how's this going to be received is this what's going to be expected from the other person am i am i assessing the situation accurately and then a, a lot of reason why the, the uncertainty is there is because especially with when, when you're dealing with teenagers and up they've already had many many experiences where they did just blurt out or or start a conversation and they were perceived as being rude or inappropriate or and they were you know sometimes punished or scolded or shunned or bullied or whatever because they misread the moment and so you know as far and then to add to the awkwardness you've got that in there they've got that in their backpack all those experiences and I, oh I want to say what's in our back, all those experiences and the meanings we take from it become that stage four, that they're the memories, the memories that we store that really truly become our narrative. That's the stage four of, of the communication. But to add to the awkwardness is that difficulty in reading nonverbal body language. Um, So many neurodivergents d- struggle with tone of voice, with facial expressions, with just even just movement of body, you know, if someone's moving toward you or moving away or noticing when someone is bored or noticing when someone's actually interested in a conversation, when someone's open to being spoken to, or when their, 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 their body language is closed off. It's very difficult for a lot of neurodivergent folks to, to read those signals. And so then that contributes to awkwardness as well because sometimes they misread those signals and And let me ask you this as a so in this particular case and I've had this before not just with this one person where they tend to lean on logic 
And I always explain emotions and logic are quite different. And so logically, she said, you know, she reasons out why it's not, she shouldn't do this. So to me, she lacks a lot of understanding of her emotions, very much so. She's, you know, this is the one, you know, Julie, we keep tripping on that word, alexemia. Alexithymia. Yeah, alexemia. <laughs> See, you don't even pronounce it correctly. But there's a, you know, as we know, each person is unique who, who's neurodiverse. And there's literally layers and layers and layers. So even if we give the script or even if we describe this, I feel that the individual comes with, whether it's comorbidities, which we're now calling about, like, are we calling them co-living? We want to get away co-occurring. from- Co-occurring, co-occurring. Co-occurring, uh, We want to get away from comorbidity. And I just find that each one, that's what I happen to love about what I have, because each one brings to the table this uniqueness and each, even though I'm certainly not an expert in any of this, I'm not a therapist, and I only deal with primary emotions, not secondary emotions. When you pick up on this, you know, you feel sad. You feel sad for them. You want to really, show, you know, teach them step-by-step, micro-steps, how to get in touch with their feelings. Because to me, if you don't have self-esteem, self-confidence, or self-compassion, you can't be in a relationship. You want to address that? So... I, I can address that, but I also want to step back. You said uh, to, to, talking about getting in touch with their feelings and alexithymia, because I, I don't think we need to breeze past that. I think that's an important thing to to discuss because what you just said about compassion and relationships does require being in touch with those feelings because what alexithymia is referencing is our ability to, or alexithymia is the lack of ability to recognize our own internal experience and so emotions if you'll if you'll think about it emotion the word emotion and feeling we use interchangeably and the reason for that is because emotions have physiological sensations uh and they are a feeling we literally feel a physical sensation in our body we you know sadness anger all the different nuanced emotions when you look at an emotion wheel, I don't know if you've ever right, seen the feeling those. wheel. Yeah. 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 All of those ha- have accompanying physical sensations, physiological, the, the, a lot of what contributes to alexithymia, which does occur in 50% of the neurodivergent population. It's also in the neurotypical population. So not just autistics um, or ADHD and some people with ADHD also experienced alexithymia, not as, not as much, but um, sensory processing is also a hallmark feature and, char- and characteristic of autistic neurodivergence and even, even ADHD neurodivergence. So basically this is related to how the brain processes all the sensory data coming in from the environment, but also from inside our body. Sensory information is data. It's data that our brain then takes and interprets to understand what's happening in any given moment. It's what we hear, what we smell, what we see. The all of that it's part of our peripheral nervous system but also internal. So, so not, not peripheral, but, but it's what we're receiving from the environment, but also what we're see- receiving from our body. So things like hunger, thirst, fatigue, oh. pain, all of those sensations come, they're data from inside our body that inform our brains and inform us about what's happening to us. So if you have a sensory processing system that is 
under responsive or overly responsive, those signals are scrambled. So for example, my, my daughter, she doesn't experience full on alexithymia, but she does have, uh, she, she struggles with sense interoception, which is intero is the, the root of that is like in, internal. And so she doesn't know when she's hungry. Her body literally doesn't tell her when she's hungry. She has no idea. She says, I feel the same before I eat, after I eat, I don't know when I'm full. She, the only thing that really gives her the idea, the, the awareness that she's starving is when her stomach finally starts cramping and she feels the pain mm -hmm. from a stomach cramp. So that's an interoceptive sense. My son is uh, ADHD. He doesn't feel internal body temperature. So he can overheat or he can become, he, when he was a child, he turned blue. His lips turned blue one time before I realized he was freezing. I, I just didn't know he was that cold. And so if you think about it, those are more obvious to, to see in terms of, okay, you don't, you can't tell that you're hot. You can't tell that you're hungry. Some people can't tell when they're tired. Other people can't feel their emotions. They can't feel the warm fuzzies, the butterflies, the the tingling when we're afraid. Afraid, you know, if you step out your front door and there, you step into a spider web, which happened to me the other day, um, <laughs> and you feel the, you know, that puts the, everybody <laughs> into a tailspin. <laughs> yeah, but you know what that feels like? That's like your whole body tingles from head to toe, and you're like, <laughs> and your heart starts racing, you know. But if you don't feel those sensations you're mm -hmm. not familiar with what that is and right. so when a a a partner or somebody else says what are you feeling or how do you feel so many times that neurodivergent person will say i don't know and it's so frustrating because it it seems like that person is just blocking or not willing to share or you know not wanting to open up but really truthfully I don't know is legitimately true. Mm -hmm. And so Debbie, you were saying helping people get in touch with their feelings. There is some capacity to help people stop and internally pay attention to what, you know, what do you notice anything in your body right now? But a lot of that is also neurologically hardwired one of the the best ways to help people get in touch with their body is through occupational therapists who are trained in sensory integrative treatment and it they literally teach help the brain learn how to recognize sensation mm -hmm. and how to to notice and register sensation so those are the, that's something that most even most people don't even know about occupational therapy mm -hmm. and it takes it's a certain type of therapist that helps so anyway, I feel like I'm just blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. The <laughs> truth of the matter is, is that it, it, this is so important because when people bring up conversation of things that families don't know about, like even I didn't know about the OT and I'm the first one who will say, if I don't know something from my client or I feel like I'm not really helping them, I want to find the resource. Mm -hmm. I want to send them to the proper place because if emotions are having them get in touch with their feelings isn't going to work then let's, let's send them to an OT because mm -hmm. my, Julie and I both talk about this all the time. We're only about benefiting. We want to benefit the person. And we know, I always say the most important thing to know is what you don't know, because yeah. that's your strength. Because if you don't know how to help that person, ask around, 
get the help, get them into some other with some other professional because it's not a matter of pride. Mm -hmm. It's not yeah. about oh, me. Yeah. It's about the person you want to help. And right. you know, and all of this work is complimentary too. Definitely. So, you know, my referring, I mean, we ref, we refer clients to therapy all the time because they have a, they've got a lot going on. You know, they've got a lot going on and they've got other stuff to work out. We we work on very practical stuff. Let's get mm -hmm. our work done. Let's go get the internship. Let's talk to the professor. That's the stuff that we work on with our clients. Um, we refer people out, you know, mm -hmm. when we when we see that what we're doing could be enhanced by them getting by some other help, mm -hmm. you know. Um I refer and to Julie. I said at people different times. Yeah. And at different times, people need different things. Right. I totally multiple, agree with that. And, and multiple disciplines, yeah. It, it really is a village. It takes a village it, because all of us have our own unique <clears throat> specializations and, and even knowledge and understanding. And so anytime, and <clears throat> excuse me, may have to edit that out. Um, but in, yeah, it's, I think it's important for all of us as professionals to, to build that network of other professionals. So we can mm -hmm. make those referrals when necessary and, mm -hmm. and, and it, you know, I learn from my clients all the time. My clients are constantly telling, you know, cause I'm, you know, nine to five seeing clients producing podcasts. I, you know, I've got a reading list a hundred miles long and it, you know, my clients are the ones a lot of times that come to me and say, Hey, have you, what do you know about this? And I'm like, um, not much. Why don't you tell me what you know? And then I'll go look it up and, and learn yes. about it myself. Um, and then I hear, you know, learn about things from other colleagues as, as well. And so oftentimes when my client tells me about something new, I'll go reach out to that person or that professional or wh whatever they're referencing, I'll go, go reach out to them so that we can under understand how we can help each other better. Because I love what you're doing, Julie, too, both of you, um, just having my, a daughter in that space. I think it's, it's so, so needed and, mm -hmm. and so important because I end up working with a, a lot of my, I've worked with teenagers through the years and I've worked with college age students years ago, really. But more recently I'm working more with couples and I'm, I'm way down the road where a lot of my clients are even in their sixties. And I've had, I've had clients all the way up into their eighties and they're re recognizing, they're realizing at this point, oh, a lot of times it's when a grandchild is diagnosed in the school mm -hmm. system or in college. <laughs> and then they're all yes. going, wait a minute. You, we've always said you're like, you know, Uncle Bob or whatever. You know, you're like me. Yeah. And <clears throat> that's when the, um, the, the realization hits. But there's also so much in their backpack now. There's mm -hmm. so many misunderstandings, so many, so much confusion, so many decades of, yes, not, of even, not understanding, not even knowing what's going on. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So if we start young, we, and I'm so glad we're identifying neurodivergence younger now, and we start teaching these skills and teaching this awareness, not only to the neurodivergent population, but also to the neurotypical population, because it's not about neurotypical being the right way. It's right. I'm, I I'm adamant about that, that yeah. a lot of my neurotypical people think that their way is the way and that the neurodivergent way people need to come on over to their side. And I'm like, well, hold up. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, that's and, not and often is. there isn't just one way to do stuff. Often, no. you know, there may be an, a way that we're accustomed to, but it's rare that the way of getting something done is really the linchpin of, you know, whatever, whatever's happening. 
<laughs> but don't forget, exactly in our generation, right. it was society di dictated to us, this is right, this is wrong. And I just got off with a, an old client. He was my first client. And I haven't spoken to him in years. And it was really very exciting. And he said, I am so tired of this labeling. So I said, well, that's why I have these podcasts to make sure people understand that just because, you know, you have an opinion and you have an opinion doesn't mean that you're right and I'm wrong and I'm right and you're wrong. And we have to accept that in society. And society is definitely trying to make great strides in terms of, you know, acceptance. But, you know, at the same time, Julie and I want to hit our heads against the wall because we find that in education, we are leap years behind you know, yeah. like in terms of where we should be. And it's yeah. so, I hear teachers talking, I hear schools, I've spoken to many schools and I talked to them about, you know, this and that. I even spoke to someone the other day and they go, yeah, yeah, we're into the social well-being and blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, great. What are you, what are you focusing on? Executive function skills. Okay, that's great. No question. But there is that attitude of, you know, we know from uh, Renee Brown, that Brown, the, uh, the, the shame aspect, the, the the secondary emotion that we're talking about, those things that you're talking about in your backpack, mm -hmm. really, truly, that's what gives them the negative feeling about themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you come home with your report card, it doesn't look so good, mom and dad make a frown. Well, you're, you're reading their minds and you shouldn't, but you are. And then, you know, the teacher looks at you and goes, like, again, like you didn't hear me. As opposed to a teacher learning, if they would include the child in a certain way, then right. they would like, embarrass the child and then the child would wake up because you got to give them something to wake them up a little bit. So we're, you know, we're doing our best. Um, I see certainly you are. And we really are so thrilled. But at the same time, there's so few of us. There's so few people like I'm, I'm a mentor. I'm not a therapist. I make it very clear. And uh, I do the same thing as Julie. I will. I find therapists for my clients. I literally go out of my way to find the right people. Mm -hmm. I think that's extremely important. They could choose to just go to the therapist or do both of us. I don't push that. Um, I think we have more to discuss here. So, Jody, I would like to uh, welcome you to come back because we are going to have to end here. Otherwise, it's too long and people, you know, not people ask. People start to, to, I know, <laughs> I understand. I'm the same way on my podcast, too. Um, well, yes, I mean, it, it's, and I just, in closing, I want to just second what you said that um, we are so far behind. And- <sighs> Um, you know, my mother was a teacher for many, many years and she, and I've talked about it so much. She's in her seventies now and retired. Um, but even my profession, you know, like, like I'm have the background as a, a therapist for 20 years and, and my, my colleagues don't know what they need to know and it's not their fault. They're just not being taught. Um, and with, there are so few of us who are out there doing what we do. I mean, I have people contact me almost every week from Australia. I'm in Georgia. Oh, yeah. in the Southern I'm United around States. the world too. Oh yeah. Um, because there's just no, there are not enough providers. And so I'm, my goal too, is to help grow that network of people so we can meet each other. Like, I'm glad you reached out to me and we can even start to be a resource for the other professionals out there. They're, they may right. not be able, they may not be getting training that's in the schools or in, the, in, in, even in their continuing ed programs. But if we can at least help through podcasting like this, so that, because I know my colleagues reach out from, to me and ask me questions and help when they have what they notice when they, they do identify right. that they have right. a neurodivergent right. client. Yeah. And really, you know, when I, when people ask me, but you're just a mentor, you're not a therapist. How can you do this? I said, there's such a gap and there's such a need. Mm -hmm. And so therefore 
if you can find a therapist who who really understands neurodiversity, you know, mm-hmm. go for it. And most of them call me and say, my therapist didn't understand me. They didn't get it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm going to wrap I up. I will say that therapists, the, the, the language of therapy is emotion. And so when therapists, I mean, therapists are taught emotion-based therapies. And when you get somebody there, you know, clients in that are not emotion-based, it's, it really isn't going to work in the way that that therapeutic modality is meant to work. And so, it yeah, I mean, I teach in. emotions. I teach them what, what it means and the steps through, but we'll talk about that another time. Julie, you have anything to add? I want, no, I, I think it's great. I really appreciate you coming on this yeah. week, Jody. We'd love to have you back to talk some more about communication and great. I'd love to be back and, and uh, thanks for what you guys are doing too. Thank you so much. So we're going to wrap it up at episode four, Get It Done for the Neurodivergent Individual. We really hope you enjoyed this. And if you have, please share it. Please send us feedback and please be, be feel comfortable to ask questions so we could address it in the show. Okay, trying to stop the recording and I am having a problem with that. Okay, there we go. <laughs> I just found it.